Lectionary Lab Live is recorded live in Gainesville, Florida and Brasstown, North Carolina. Welcome, everybody, to the Lectionary Lab Live. I'm John Fairless. I'm here with my Bubba, Delmer Chilton. Say hey, Bubba. Hey, Bubba. Yeah, man, with the regular rhythm, rhyme, cadence, and uh, eagerness, we are ready for another week of talking some text and thinking about preaching. We are cruising on into this season after Pentecost, A.A.K., AKA summertime. That's kind of the shorthand yeah. for me. Uh, we are talking today for a text for the second Sunday after Pentecost. And uh, these are the texts for June the 11th, 2023. Six texts, Bubba. Tell us what you got on your mind or jump in anytime, anywhere you want to. Well, just letting everybody know that for this summer, because I love the semi continuous romp, mostly through Genesis and, and Exodus. And, that I'm going to try to hit all six. And what we're going to do each week is I'm going to talk about that Hebrew scripture story, biblical story, and they'll hit the, and the psalm that goes with it and try to get that done quickly at the beginning mm-hmm. with some good thoughts about that. And then we'll go through the complementary text, depending on which trail you follow. Yeah. And uh, we'll get it all done. Get it done. It's fascinating stuff. I didn't think of this in time, Bubba, but you and I have discussed the phenomenon that is the Savannah Bananas baseball team, right? And if y'all haven't, (laughs) if you don't know anything about Savannah Bananas, YouTube YouTube and Google, it just get, you got to watch it. And they kind of (laughs) make, I think, what is their motto? They said something about uh, fans first entertainment always. And so they have special rules that kind of shorten the game. And one of my favorites is whenever uh, there's a walk, a base on balls, then the infield has to, or excuse me, the team has to go in order from position to position and everybody has to touch the ball while the runner can take off. And if they can get first, if they can get second, if they can get to third, you can steal on a walk. And uh, I love that. I love that. So we don't have any, uh, uh, we don't have any uh, lectionary (laughs) banana rules, but we will try to move along. Well, I will say as a baseball purist, I don't consider a Savannah Bananas a baseball game. Well, it's baseball. But it's like going to the Harlem Globetrotters. It is. You know? the, they are the Harlem Globetrotters of, of minor league baseball. That's exactly And if you don't it. go to watch a baseball game, you go to watch fun <laughs> built around the issue of baseball. It's a hoop. That is So let's move it. on here. That is it. I don't, I don't think I'd want to watch 60 games a year, but uh, it's no. fun to catch a couple. All right. No. Let's jump in today. Here we go. Here we go. So the theme all the way through all six lessons for this particular day is essentially faith. Mm-hmm. Um, it is um, the core of it for me is caught with a, a Luther quote. I'm going to paraphrase that it used to have the official English translation quote taped inside my Bible from the time I was in my first year of seminary. And it finally that old piece of paper and that tape fell apart and it slid away sometime <laughs> along those through those years. Yeah. But it goes something like this. We are saved by faith, not by works. But if we have no works, something is amiss with our faith. There you go. Faith is a lively, restless thing and cannot be still. Mm-hmm. We are saved by faith, not by works, but if we have no work, something is amiss with our faith. I think that theme kind of runs throughout as we try to struggle with the question today, what does it mean to have faith and what are the implications of having faith? Uh, The semi-continuous Hebrew scripture tract, uh, the text from Genesis 12, is the call and response of Abram and Sarah. Beautiful story. These seminal uh text perhaps of yeah. that of that call and response of faith and and of obedience yeah. there are many other examples but uh 
this one gets it really well. And then on the complimentary track, you have a later, uh, much later story about from the Hosea, the uh, the prophet, in which he's challenging people as to what is the results of their faith? What kind of works are coming out of your faith? What kind of works does God require? Mm-hmm. Uh, in Romans is Paul's take on a what was a vexing Jewish theological question. Uh, faith reckoned as righteousness. Of course, as a Southerner, I've always liked the fact there's so many uses of the word reckon mm-hmm. in one place in the Bible. Uh, the new common English Bible ta- translates this, it was credited to him mm-hmm. as righteousness. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that when we get there. Yeah. What does that mean? And in Matthew, uh, Matthew 9, 13, Jesus quotes Hosea and he is encouraging people to say, what is it, again, what does it mean to have faith in this particular situation? Right. Uh, you know, he's applying it to a particular group of people in a particular situation, and we'll look at that. So all of that is that issue is what, who has faith? And if you have faith, what does it look like? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you, I, you reckon that Jesus had read Hosea a time or two? I reckon. I reckon. <laughs> okay. So, you know, what are faithful actions? And the, the, yeah. At core, through the Bible, it is always God acts, God acts first. God acts. How do we react? Mm. Do we react with legalism? I've got to do these things in order to keep God pleased with me. Do we react with sacrifice, which is somewhat of a bargaining situation with God? Or do we find ourselves responding with thanksgiving and with acts of mercy, love, and acceptance? Mm. Those are the questions for the day. So let's start over here with Genesis. Uh, Genesis 1 through 11 is is primeval history. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, even even for um, the Jewish folk, when it was first written, it was it was a presumed there was anatomy, but it was prehistory. It was right. not tried try to date it. It was explanatory stories. But one of the interesting things about Genesis one through eleven, as you look at it, it was really dealing with sin and sin's consequences. Mm-hmm. Adam and Eve and the serpent and the apple, Cain and Abel, first murder. You've got Noah and the flood. You've got the Tower of Babel. Let's look at all those stories. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of sin. (laughs) And Genesis 12 comes when God says, I got an answer here. (laughs) (laughs) Genesis 1. Yeah, 1 through 11 is one of those situations, you know, somebody's telling a story or or they're, uh, you know. I said all of that in order to say this. And so you pick up the story of Abram with all of what went before in your mind. Yeah. When when Stephen Colbert does one of the shaggy dog story jokes, he says it was a long walk to get there, but it was worth it. Yeah. So it's a long walk to get to this point. Mm-hmm. Um, so for the Yahwist writer and for the priestly writer, for both of them, this story is the turning point of not only the history of Israel, but the turning point of world history. Yeah, It is what shifts what's been going on. I wouldn't call it 1 through 11 a failed experiment. It is just this continual human beings not getting mm-hmm. what's going on. So God comes with the covenant people, yeah. which begins with one. God sets history on a direction that leads to universal blessing. This is what's happening here. The possibility of redemption, what we call in Hebrew scripture studies, salvation history, all begins right here. Mm -hmm. So in verses one through three, we have an episode that gets repeated with all the rest of the chapter, uh, Genesis, with all the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. Just all it happens. And what happens is God makes a promise. Here it's the wonderful I wills. 
God says, I will. I think that's the second best name God's got. First name God's got is I am. Mm -hmm. The other one is I will. Mm -hmm. I will. He makes a promise. Then God promises in verse 3a that solidarity with Abraham. That's what the whole blessing and bless those that bless you and curse those that curse you. Basically, he says to Abraham, and well, while you're, if I will do all these things and I'll have your back. I got your back. I'm with you. And then in 3b, promises to bless the world. Lays out, I'm going to make you a great nation and through you and that great nation, I'm going to bless the world. Yeah. This is the quintessential uh, basis of the covenant. Let me talk about that and yeah. how it, it, and you're right in Genesis and continually. It's God's covenant blessing to God's people. And as you've just identified, it is not just for, quote, a chosen people, and it stops there. It is a people chosen to expand that covenant to all the world. And so we come back again and again and again to Genesis 12, uh, these first few verses. Uh, yeah, it's it's everything. So verses 1 through 3 is that repeatable covenant process. The rest of this lesson, 4 through 9, is, consists of a, Abram's response. Yeah. So Abram went. That's it. That's his response. And, he went. So Abram went. And the covenant expects a response, right? Yeah. Uh, it's two ways. It expects two a response. Ways. And Genesis is going to show us that the human response is quite often somewhat less than adequate. And yet... Yeah, the word steadfast yeah, is applied to, to God, God continually. Right. Very seldom to God's people. <laughs> uh, Yep. Then the rest of that four through the four through five is the the group roster. You know, Abram mm -hmm. and I, I find it. You know, you don't explore too deeply. And Sarah and Lot and the people they had accumulated. Mm -hmm. Okay. You know, it's it. But the importance there, you can plunge around in. Oh, so the slaves, the servants. You know, who are those people? But the individual promise immediately has a ripple effect with other people. That's the important thing there. And then six through nine is the itinerary as he begins to move through this land. But one of the important things is in this lesson and for a long, long time, Abram has the promise. He's in the midst of the land, but he doesn't own it. Even to the extent that when Sarah dies, he has to buy yeah. part of the promised land mm -hmm. to bury her. That's it. These uh, it's a long term promise. Yeah, these places are all going to be uh, key points along the way in the story. Yeah. I mean, we know this story is written backwards, right? They they're looking right. back at this, and so Genesis, uh, just yeah, we'd ever strain you identifying here. It's pretty well written, and so Shechem, uh, Moray, um, uh, continuing on Bethel, all of these places are going to be key later in the story. So it's planting seeds right here. Right, couple of couple of quick quick things. If I were you know to preach on this, I think your two keys. Uh, I would even title it "I will." Mm -hmm. So Abram went. I will in quotes, mm -hmm. and then, so Abram went. Maybe one, you know, those are the those are the short, terse things. Notice how many times God says what God will do. Mm -hmm. He says to Abram, "Go." From your country, your kindred, and your father's house. Leave everything you know to the land. Then he starts with the I. I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. I will. You will be a blessing. I will bless. I will curse those who curse you. I will bless the families of the earth through you. That's an implied mm -hmm. I will. And so you get all of that in verses 1 through 3, all those promises. And the simple response is, so Abram went. went. <laughs> yep. Abram went. God, God gives then, the expected response, go. Then God gives God's end of the bargain. I will, I will, I will. Adds another I will a little bit later. And then we see Abram going, 
okay, guess I'll go. There's there's the response. Yeah. And the question for us is, what has God willed for us? Mm. And what are we called to leave? And will we go? Here you go. <laughs> and every congregation is different. Every, every situation is different. But those questions still apply. Yeah. The question of faith is, what has God promised us? What Do we believe mm-hmm. that promise? What are we willing to give up to t- hold yeah. on to God's promise? Mm-hmm. Will we go? Um, that That is a great candidate. That, that sort of outline. It's a great candidate for what you've shared with us before, your $3,000 sermon. Back in the days right. when you got $100 to preach and you used it 30 times or whatever. Uh, $3,000 sermon. Yeah, that's, right. that, that's it. Uh, that outline. And, and it doesn't really change. And that's why Genesis is such a wonderful book and so foundational. That's that call and response is going to play out over and over and over. And it always comes back. What are we going to do? You know, well, one, one, one of the things, as you you say, in in terms of looking at a text, any text, Mm -hmm. is you can ask those questions. What has God promised Mm -hmm. here? What are the promises of God here? Do I believe that promise? That's an individual question. Do we believe that promise? Why are we hesitant? What is it that is? Why? Are, what is it we may have to give up? And will we go? I mean, that's uh, and what happens if we? How do we respond to this promise? Yeah. You know, it was clear for Abram. It was go. And I think most questions, calls have us letting go of one thing and grabbing on to another. We get over into the Gospels, and Jesus says, "Take up your cross and follow." Mm-hmm. Anybody hold on to their life will lose it. You could lose your life for my sake. You'll gain it. It's the same dynamic. So we moved the psalm as a psalm of praise. Uh, One through three is the call to worship. And it it has kind of five things it calls people to do in there of praise and shout and rejoice and all that. Then four through seven turns on the word kai, K-I, which means for or because or why for, (laughs) you know, why do we do this? And it's interesting, two things. It then lists five things God has done. Mm -hmm. That's that kind of Hebrew parallelism Mm -hmm. that you, we don't necessarily pick up as easily in, in English. Five things God has done, but Notice three times it talks about the word of God is upright. That's in verse four, in verse six, by the word of the Lord, and in verse nine, for he spoke. So this psalm is saying, in reflecting on Genesis 12, God spoke Mm. (laughs) to Abram, I will do all these things. And Abram, so Abram went. Well, why? Because he trusted God's yeah. word, knowing that God, by very speaking, creates yeah. what he what God says. Mm-hmm. That's the point of the psalm. Yeah, is it's, that's how it connects there. And again, as you right. as you pointed out to begin, this is also where Genesis one through eleven comes into play. That that foundational yes. text, because we've got right. the, by the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He gathered the waters. He puts it again, the word of God active in the very creation of the world. He spoke and it came to be. When when God has spoken, you know, do we trust what God has spoken? How do we know it's spoken of God? I mean, those are those kind of questions we bring to every text. Got it. Uh, One thing to mention as we we leave this is uh, hold on to it. Uh, because we're Romans text, as it happens this time, they coincide. And um, the Romans text treats of, uh, is Paul's treatment of this event, Paul's theological treatment of what it meant for Abram to hear this call and to go. So we'll come back to Romans in a minute. So we go over to the set of texts that are the complementary texts. Uh, we start with Hosea. Uh, it's a complex political situation we have here in the seventh, eighth century. 
thereabouts, BC, BCE. Uh, three kind of pl- main players, Judah, Israel, and the new kingdom of Assyria off up to the northeast. And, uh, you know, who's threatening whom and who's doing um, alliances with whom. You can study that in the commentaries. Mm-hmm. It, it doesn't matter that deeply. The, the key for Hosea is that the northern Israel is religiously trying to manipulate God hmm. to support their choices. Think about it. They've made some choices and, and have feel threatened on a couple of fronts. And so they go and they're doing their rituals and their sacrifice, but God's mad. The The end of uh, chapter 5, uh, and this 5.15 is the summation where God has accused, and then he says, all right, I've told you what I'm mad about. I'm waiting. That's my daddy's voice. I'm waiting. What do you have to say for yourself? I'm waiting. You know what? This is what you've been doing. I'm waiting. And 6, 1 through 3 is kind of an issue of pseudo-repentance. You read through it, and, you know, they say, Oh, come, let us return to the Lord. Hmm, for it is God who's torn us up, and so he'll heal us, and God has struck us down, so God will bind us up. It won't take long. After two days, he'll revive us. On the third day, he'll raise us up. So let's, you know, let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His appearing is as sure as the dawn. <laughs> Reminds me of Oscar Wilde, he said, who said, God's in the business of forgiving. I'm in the business of sinning. It's a great relationship. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They are presuming on the mercy of God. Mm-hmm. That's why I called it a pseudo penitence. Because in four through six, we have God's voice again. <laughs> Not so fast. Yep. What shall I do with you, Ephraim? What will I do with you, Judah? Your love is like a morning cloud. You live here where I do mm-hmm. in the mountains. You get up in the morning, you look around, and you say, My goodness, it's it's cloudy Oof. and damp. Nine by nine o'clock it's mm-hmm. dissipated. Sun's out for the rest of the day. Morning dew goes away. It's yeah. just, it's, just it's such a wonderful, again, you've alluded to the way Hebrew poetry is uh, and is constructed. And, and so you've got this almost, uh, it's not chiastic. It's not a chiasm, but no. you just quoted verse three. They're like, oh, God's mercy will be like the showers, like the rains. It cometh at dawn. And God says, yeah, well, you're like the morning cloud and the dew that goes away. And you're those two. no rain to you. Yeah. Just a little it, bit of wet. Those two are uh, opposed. Right. And, and when you consider them in opposition, you see how faithless our responses can be, even though on the surface they look very religious. Yeah. And see, the issue is there's nothing wrong with ritual. Right. There's nothing wrong with sacrifice. There's a sacrificial system. And it comes down to the issue of the heart and the attitude. And so this is why you get, I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, Mm -hmm. or not sacrifice alone, in essence. Mm -hmm. The knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. Mm-hmm. So what, what, the, what the people are trying to do, of Israel, the northern kingdom, are, are in essence trying to bargain with God without any real mm-hmm. connection or relationship mm-hmm. with God. And the genuine, a genuine uh, sacrifice comes with an attitude of thanksgiving, which shifts us over into the psalm, down to 50 verse 50, verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Mm -hmm. So the psalm is paired here in in which, um, because it talks about this very same issue. It's not, it's not your sacrifice, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Like, it's nothing wrong with sacrifices. Mm -hmm. Their offerings are before me, but please understand I don't need your food. <laughs> I don't need you, you to bring me a bull. I, I got cows on a thousand hills. Yeah, yeah. You're, you're not feeding me. 
you know, I don't need this stuff. Yeah. I, I remember, I remember when I, when, when my kids were little, you know, and uh, I remember one time, I can't remember which one made me at breakfast. <laughs> I honestly, I know it's like a sitcom trying to figure out how to get rid of that without eating it. <laughs> and so he wouldn't know that I hadn't eaten it because he was giving it to me because he loved That's it. right. I, you know, that was genuine. He wanted to do something for dad. It's the thought that I counts. Didn't, I didn't need the breakfast he was given. Well, our offerings, our sacrifices, all that, God honors it. Man, it's been probably 60 years. Mm-hmm. I'm 60, It's a kid's, you know, it's not, not 60, Lowell's 40. It's been 30-some years. I told you <laughs> before, math's not my best trick. It's been 30-some years, and it's still... Yeah. You know, swells my heart to think about it. But I didn't need it. <laughs> I didn't need it. It was the love. Yeah. And that's what the psalm ends up with. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving or back up here. I desire steadfast love, not not to sacrifice mm-hmm. the knowledge of God rather than burn offerings. I don't need the offering for the offering's sake. Right. I need your heart. Yeah. And that's what where Hosea is going. And then I'm going to skip Romans for just a moment because of the importance of the, what um, what Jesus does. Yeah. So the first of two stories in the gospel today, mm-hmm. chapter nine, nine through thirteen. The first one is a a typical conflict story. It's the calling of Matthew, and the there already been conflicts with the Pharisees up to this point. And so the tax collector, Matthew, comes. And then basically it doesn't, you can imagine this part because this is a very terse Mm. little story, the way Matthew puts it, is there's a party. And it's Matthew and another more tax collectors and senators. It's his tax collector friends who he's invited to meet Jesus. And the disciples are there and they're having this party. And the Pharisees are looking on and saying, what? What's going on over there? What's going on over there? Who's he, what's he dealing with? Tax collectors, you know, these agents of the evil Roman Empire who skim as much as they can off the top. You know how awful these people are. And and what's he doing over there? And then Jesus quotes what, I, what he wants. You know, he quotes... Uh, Hosea, and he says, go and learn what this means. Verse 13, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? First, he does just an old saying. Everybody there knew a doctor's place is with the sick, Mm -hmm. not sitting around complimenting the well on being well. Core underneath this is... The Pharisees' response to God's grace is to say, well, we got to earn this. Got to legalism and keep separate and do all this. And Jesus' response to that is, go learn what the Bible means. <laughs> go learn the scripture. <laughs> yeah. Go learn what Hosea meant. Which, interestingly, they probably all could have quoted Hosea to him. Yeah. And he doesn't say, go learn this first. No. He says, go learn what this means, means. What, what underlies this. And then, of course, he gives yeah. his, at least Matthew, giving us what he sees as Jesus' bit of interpretation. I came to call yeah. the, not didn't come to call the righteous. I came for sinners. Yeah. 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 So then following out the rest of the Matthew story, so you get nine through 13. One of the important things to know is chapters eight and nine of Matthew have 12 healings stories. Now there are more healings than that because some of them are group healings, people coming, but healing after healing after healing. And what Matthew is, is revealing is that Jesus, the Christ as the precursor of the kingdom, the bringer of the kingdom, showing the image of God is showing that God cares about those who are sick and suffering to the extent that he will cross all the barriers that we put up 
to keep that from happening. The two healings in this uh, few verses here, uh, 18 through 26, it's a wraparound story in these two healings. He but he goes across two different barriers. The wraparound story, the one that begins and ends with, with the, the ruler of the synagogue's daughter, she's dead. Hmm. There's no implication she wasn't dead. This is a just as much a raising of somebody from the dead as Lazarus. And he touched a dead body. He went in and took her by the hand. That doesn't touch us. Hmm. But Matthew's Jewish readers would have. <gasps> and the girl got up. He went and recovered her from death. God is a God of life, not of death. And then you have in the middle, as he's going from the place where he was hanging out with people he wasn't supposed to hang out with, the tax collectors and sinners, a woman who wasn't who was ritually unclean and had been for 12 years, she had not been able to not be to purify herself for 12 years, reached out and touched him and he said, take heart, your daughter, your faith has made you well. And according to law and tradition, he should have said, why dare you touch me <laughs> in this state? Mm-hmm. The message here and throughout this is that God's response to our faith is acceptance, love, and embrace. Not say, clean yourself up before you come in my house. Mm-hmm. There you go. God's response is come in my house and we'll clean up. Yeah. And the undercurrent there is what does it mean to have faith? And in both these stories, God acts first. If, you know, God in Christ, Jesus was walking along. He saw a man called Matthew and he said to him, follow me. You come. come." Just as he said (laughs) to Abram, go, go. He said to him, and Matthew got up and followed him. The same as Abraham, so Abram went. Mm -hmm. And along the way, we see in the rest of the Genesis story, we see Abram deepening his level of what it means to follow. And we'll see the same thing with Matthew. And the initial thing he does is, Hey, y'all. <laughs> hey, fellas, y'all come on over. I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, on, you got to meet this guy. I'm, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, not cook dinner, but I'm going to provide dinner. And Yeah. Y'all come. And Jesus didn't say, well, um, you know, you all are all inappropriate for me to eat dinner with. <laughs> so y'all, you know, you get yourselves ritually clean and everything, and then I'll come. No, you can't. Jesus, the woman with the, yeah, the Jesus head. sat down with the folks that Professor Harold Hill made his living decrying, uh, you know, because yeah. I can remember growing up and said, no, don't go down to the pool hall, right? Because it's bad things happen down there. Don't y'all go down there and, you know, Harold Hill, hey, you got trouble here. Uh, and River Capital City. Capital T, yeah. rhymes with P, and that stands for pool. And he gets them all riled up about these folks. Yeah. Well, Music man. Yeah. We've got um, those folks, tax collectors and sinners here, and the Pharisees getting all riled up about those folks. And then beautifully, as you've elucidated it, as Jesus moves on there with a healing, Matthew uses that to talk about two other, those folks. Number one, both female. So they had a couple of strikes against them. One, the woman with the issue of blood. The second with the girl who is for all intents and purposes and is dead. And one of the things I see this time reading through this is how in one instance, Jesus is touched. The hem of his cloak, the woman reaches out to touch. The other instance, Jesus touches. And this is, you know, this grace kind of flowing both ways. Faith flowing uh, both ways. And my last contribution, and then I'll let you take us on home with Romans yeah. is, uh, I, I love in verse 24, 
Jesus, she's not dead, just sleeping. And they laughed at him. Then he puts yeah. them out, freaks the girl, brings her out. And I kind of want Jesus to say, so who's laughing now? Yeah. <laughs> na, 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 na. Who's laughing now? Yeah, no. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, these are professional mourners. They know death, the flute players, and the crowd, you know, they, they make their living off That's of this, it. you know. Yeah, and they know it's a you could cut us out of this. Mm-hmm. We know a dead body when we see one. Yeah, um, couple of thing, couple of other things here for us as we as we mm-hmm. think about this homiletically. One of the questions then for the congregation, for each of us to be thinking about for ourselves is, you know, we're always ready to embrace those who the rest of the culture has decided it's okay to embrace. Mm. You know, um, question is, who are we still excluding? Who are we demonizing? Who are the tax collectors and sinners and the ritually unclean in 2023 where we preach and live out our Christian faith? Mm-hmm. And I, as I look at my t- morning skim through newsletter of the day's news as I glance at PBS evening news or whatever, listen to NPR, you know, in all the various ways I gather news, I see an awful lot of finger pointing about those people mm-hmm. from a multitude of directions who are saying, these are the people that are the problem in this country, and, and how can you associate with them? We need to cancel them, or we need to, you know, mm-hmm. I'm stepping on toes from both ends of the political uh, spectrum. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. We need to remove them. So this challenges all of us to say, how is it we are called to respond if God loves everybody and somebody is put in front of me? that I do not like them. I don't like their politics. I don't like their cultural behavior. How is God calling me to respond to them? Yeah. How, how am I to reach out to them? And what are the limits of how I do that? I think those are key questions this text raises for us. And we need to, as Jesus says in verse 13. We need to go and learn what this means. You need to go sit with this for a little while. We need to think about what does it mean and what, and how unclean was I (laughs) when I was invited in and what difference has it made? So Romans chapter 4, 13 through 25 is a very famous text. And I think most of us have dealt with it many different times, many different ways. As I said, it's one of those that as a Southerner, I like the fact that it uses reckoned at least three or four times. And, and uh, you know, I, 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 it'd be fun to find out exactly how reckoned, which is a very acceptable use of English language in the British Empire for calculate or figure or, you know, mm-hmm. I remember sitting in a classroom and the continuing ed program, two-week program at the University of Oxford and hearing two Oxford University professors arguing over a theological point. And one of them said to the other, how do you reckon that? Mm-hmm. And I almost laughed until I realized he was not joking. Mm-hmm. And What's I'm your argument? How do you, of, how how do you do take you, this and that and put them together? And, yeah, come up with the result. An, yeah. So, I, you know, I don't know how it, it became a joke to say how we say reckon, but that that's not the vexing question of this text. The vexing question of this text, which was a the, Jewish theological question was um, if, if obedience to Torah is the quintessence of being Jewish, of having faith, what do we do with all those exemplars of faith who came before Torah? Yeah. That was a, that was a real question. I, and, and I have to say, growing up, uh, you know, the, the, the Christian version of that is, well, what about all those good people that, that 
that lived died and died before Christ. Jesus, yeah. before Christ, and and how what happened to them? And um, it's the same kind of question. And Paul, there were there were different ways that rabbis tried to answer the question. Some of them said, "Well." <laughs> Abram kind of in his heart knew the Torah. He lived out the Torah without it being written down. He was a Torah, he was Torah obedient by nature. Interesting. Um, there were others that just sort of skimmed by the question and just named them as, you know, Torah obedient without saying how. There were various lines of attack and Basically, they avoided saying those people are going to hell because they predated Torah. Paul goes on a whole new third track. He basically does a trail that says God's promise came in chapter 12 of Genesis, which precedes the reckoning of Abram as righteous, which really comes in chapter 15 which precedes by a couple of more chapters mm -hmm. the ritual of circumcision, which was very important at this point. So Paul's conclusion is that the relationship with God of Abram was based on his faith in God's promise rather than on obedience to God's Torah. That was reckoned to him as righteousness as a way of saying God calculated without the use of the Torah. Yeah. So what does that make Torah? Well, for Paul, then it shifts from being, and it was, he's making the point, if you make Torah into a rule that has to be obeyed to get the reward of God's love, you've misread Torah. Torah is a writing down of what was always the basis of the covenant. You put God first and obey God. God says, and you do. Um, then he does this thing in, in the Romans text that is very fascinating where he's talking about almost dead. I love that line. <laughs> he was almost dead, already as good as dead. You know, he was seven. Back in Genesis, says he was seventy-five when he heard the call and said yes. I used to think that was ancient. I'm <laughs> six, that's only six years from now. <laughs> Creeping up on you, Baba. Yeah. Creeping up on me. Seventy-five, as good as dead. I'll give it that. Yeah. And his wife was barren. One commentator points out then that what basically Abraham did was he believed an absurd thing an absurd and impossible thing that everybody who read this story knew was an absurd and impossible thing. It's not just that God said something believable and he chose to accept it. He believed an impossible thing. Mm -hmm. In the same way, and this is why he makes these references to death, in the same way we Christians have faith and believe in God, because we believe an absurd and impossible thing. Yeah. God, Jesus was raised from the dead, and God will raise us from the dead. Yeah. That's the nature of faith. God said, and, and we go through life on the basis of believing that absurd and impossible thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Paul's argument, as you've laid it out, he's uh, for Abraham looking at this and going, I don't know how God's going to do this. Abraham yeah. didn't know how God was going to do this, but because Abraham just went and, and God's yeah. going to work it out, which is really the story of how, you know, it continues God working it out. And for us, yes, I agree. Same thing. I believe. Uh, do I know all the details? Can I figure out all the ways God is saving the world? Uh, no, I don't, but I believe and I want to be a part of it and I'm going to continue to follow and uh, do 
what I find to do. Uh, but yeah, good stuff, man. A great walk through. Um, I've enjoyed it, and I'll enjoy being back next time. Did you get to say everything you wanted to say, Bubba? I did. I did. I did. Right. Uh, when you were talking about the dinner, um, I was reminded of an event that happened in when we were sharing a building. Mm-hmm. Talking about tax collectors and sinners and people <laughs> noticing. The Lutherans uh, and we the Baptists. Lutherans and the Baptists were sharing a building in Nashville. And it was a favorite place we had to, to uh, have pizza, my family and I, La, La Paz on Charlotte Avenue. And we uh, met there. We went there frequently. My kids were, you know, junior high, high school. We'd have a big, pie, uh, you know, big table full of Mexican food. One Sunday, my church met during the Sunday school hour and your church met at 11, we had Sunday, you know, all yeah. of that. So we, we were sort of around in the same area during refreshment time between services. The two congregations would see each other a bit. And this one day, this woman that I knew through kind of our shared youth ministry that we did together came over and kind of quietly whispered to me, I saw you at La Paz, but I won't tell anybody. <laughs> I was totally mystified. I, I, I said, okay, but what's wrong with Mexican? Yeah. <laughs> and she said, they serve beer there. <laughs> now, it just so happened, uh, you know, I'm a Lutheran. I could drink beer if I wanted to, but I, I didn't there uh, for a multitude of reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but I said, well, okay, I know, but why, what, I don't, I didn't drink any beer. She says, but you're a pastor. You're not supposed to be somewhere they serve beer. Mm. I think you and I had this conversation about it later. And it was a part of that. You'd almost have to be a certain type of evangelical Southern slash Baptist, you know, which aren't, you know, to understand. And I'd forgotten that part of Mm. the culture, which was there are certain. Oh, yeah. So I wasn't supposed to be in that place Mm -hmm. because people could buy beer there. Yeah, Mm -hmm. and that's not hypocritical on their part. It was it was a sense of, and totally Mm -hmm. good. There was a certain good fine church woman, but essentially the same question: Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Exactly. Why why is this going on? Yeah, and she was trying to protect me, and I said. I'll just tell you, you can tell any of them you want to that you saw me in a place that serves me here. Yeah. It's okay. And it was all around the Sunday but, school the next week, I'm sure. But Yeah. Well, so the, 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 and, and going back, that's just a story I wanted to share. The question is, now see, we can look at that and laugh, but the question is, what do we do that judges others yeah, for where they who, are and what they're Who doing? are we cutting out, right? Who are we? Yep. Judging. Well, they're not supposed to be yeah. there. They're not supposed to attend that political rally. They're not supposed to, you know, on and on and on. So it doesn't matter what yeah. side you're on. It calls yeah. us um, to consider. Go and learn what this means. Hmm, I like yeah. it. Bubba, thanks. I reckon that we've covered everything today and that there's not much left for us to do other than to tell everybody bye. Everybody bye. Lectionary Lab Live is a Two Bubbles and a Bible production. Our opening theme is Next Steps, performed by Half.Cool. We go out today with Here I Am, Lord, the well-known hymn written by Daniel Shute, today performed by the National Youth Choir of Scotland. <laughs>